Father, as we come to this very sobering text of Scripture, we pray that you may help us to have insight from your Spirit, that we might consider the actions of those on that day and the actions of all of us here today, if we were in the same situation. We pray that your Spirit would search our hearts, we pray that your Word would penetrate all of our defenses, and that we would see Christ in all of his glory. We pray in his name. Amen. I am pleased to report to you this morning that I am very much aware that I have a sore on my right foot. I'm also thankful to note that when I shave, which unfortunately I do almost every day, and I cut myself, it stings like crazy when I wash my face afterwards. Now you're probably wondering, he seems like he's lost a couple of his paddles in the water and uh, doesn't have a full supply of marbles. What's he talking about? Well, if you know anything about the disease called leprosy, you, if you know anything about it, and I, which recently have been reviewed, reviewing the wonder of how thankful I am for the way God has made me, as Mitch was saying earlier, I'm thankful that my nervous system accurately transmits pain when something is not right in my body. Because the scientists have discovered that those who suffer with leprosy, known today as Hansen's disease, they often lose their fingers, they lose their toes, they lose their eyesight because they feel no pain. They forget to blink their eyes. They forget that when they're rubbing their eyes, they rub too much with too much pressure. They have no idea that the blister on their foot is infected or they've just burned their finger. Now, hear me out. I don't enjoy pain, but I am grateful that the neurological system that God has designed that consistently warns me with the pain so that I don't slowly self-destruct, I'm thankful the system works. Now this morning I want us to think about another signal system, another warning system that God has designed for our benefit. It is our conscience. Conscience is the soul's automatic warning system. That one of the disabilities, sorry, one of the distinctions between animals and humans is the ability for us to contemplate our actions and to make moral self-evaluations. We read in the second chapter of Romans that God has made all of us with a portion of God's law written on our hearts. Our conscience bears witness to that reality with thoughts that alternately accuse us and defend us. So we're all wired with a conscience. That's the way God's made us. Our conscience entreats us to do what we believe is right. It also entreats us and restrains us from doing what we believe is wrong. And when we violate our conscience, it can trigger feelings of shame and regret and of disgrace, even fear. Our conscience, of course, is not infallible. It is intended to hold us accountable to the highest standards of right and wrong that we know. Now, I found it interesting that the conscience works from our earliest days. I can recall, I've got two of my children here today. Sorry, guys, but I'm going to mention what I remember about when they were very young, all three of my kids. When they were about the time when they could start walking around, My wife and I would explain to them that they were not to touch 
the electronic devices that were located right where their little fingers could reach them. At that day, it was a VCR back in the technology years ago. But they loved to push all those little buttons because they were right near their reaching point. And I can remember watching them as our precious little children would look around to see if I was around or some other adult was around, like mom, before they'd make a beeline for that little electronic device. And they had a conscience because they would always look around and see if the coast was clear. And if everything was okay, boom, they'd ignore the prompting of their conscience and they'd do what was forbidden. Now, I've done the same more often than I can count. Haven't you? Haven't you? Now, this morning, I'd like to look at two areas of concern regarding the conscience. You say, when are we going to get into this text of Scripture? I think you're going to find how this all applies. I want us to look at two areas of concern regarding the conscience. First of all, I'm concerned that many people in today's world, they try to ignore. Ignore or to silence their conscience. Point number one. There are serious consequences that will occur if people choose this pattern. A number of things I'm saying today have been drawn from and very much informed by the book, The Vanishing Conscience, which I would recommend to your reading by John MacArthur. But in this book, he describes the crash of an Avianca jet. It's a Spanish airline. It took place in 1984 in which everyone who was on board died. They, of course, went into the uh, destruction, uh, destruction of that plane. They went and they found the black box, and it revealed that just before the crash, there was a shrill, computer-synthesized voice from the plane's automatic warning system. And it was loudly proclaiming in English, pull up, pull up, pull up. And for some inexplicable reason, the pilot was heard saying, shut up, gringo and then proceeded to turn the alarm off. And only moments later, the plane slammed into that mountainside. Now we find a number of people here in Matthew 27 who I believe were ignoring and seeking their best to silence their conscience. The warning system of their conscience, I believe, was sounding the alarm. Think about them. Here's Judas as the treasurer of this band of disciples for three years. Judas has been embezzling money secretly, taking it from the other disciples from what would be called the operational fund. It is Judas who now, after following Jesus for over three years, has just now accepted a bribe to betray Jesus, all the while knowing he's innocent and there's no reason to give him up to the authorities. And when he learned, as we read in Matthew 27, the beginning verses there, when he learned that Jesus indeed now has been condemned by the Jewish authorities and he would likely be executed, his conscience caused him to feel deep regret. Verse 4. And yet he did not come forward as a witness at the Roman trial in which he could have come up and said, listen, I know this man to be innocent or I know this man to be whatever. He could have said a number of things there before the Roman trial, but he did not say a thing. Why? Because his conscience knew full well that was telling him this man is innocent. 
He does not deserve to die. Think about the chief priests, the elders. They're also listed here in the text early on in the chapter. Out of envy over Jesus' popularity among all these multitudes, they have conducted an illegal trial. We talked about that last week. They've condemned this man even though he was innocent. And they had ignored the alarm of their conscience when they paid Judas all this money to betray an innocent man. So that when Judas now returns the money, when he says, listen, (laughs) this is not right. The man is not guilty. He's innocent. What happens? Their conscience says, well, we can't use this money in the temple treasury, so we'll use it for something else that will somehow feel like it's good for the betterment of mankind. Their conscience alarm is sounding. And yet they go ahead, refusing to take the blood money back, but the full, the, the full implication is what? They did nothing to stop the process of injustice that moved forward. And then there's Pilate. Pontius Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, and yet he did not, and he knew that Jesus did not deserve to be crucified. If you read John's Gospel, I would urge you to do that. At this time of the year, it's fascinating to start reading and comparing some of these texts in the Gospels, the last day or two of Jesus' life. In chapters 18 and 19 of John's Gospel, three times John records Pilate saying these words, I find no guilt in him. He tried several strategies to avoid issuing Jesus' death sentence. First of all, he offered to release a prisoner, hoping that they would say, yes, release Jesus, who's now been arrested. But no, they wanted to have Barabbas released instead. So then what does he do? He he, um, he finds out that Jesus was from a Galilean, so he sends Jesus over to um, Herod Antipas, the Galilean tetrarch, hoping that somehow he'll let him deal with all this mess. And that didn't work because it came right back to him. And thirdly, he punishes Jesus and seeks at that point to say, well, let's just let him go now. Even his wife is bringing forward this concern about this innocent man. Verse 19 She says, have nothing to do with that righteous man, indicating what? Don't go forward here. Don't have your your, um, involvement in seeing him condemned. Nevertheless, he releases Barabbas. He delivers Jesus over to be crucified like a criminal. Verse 26. His conscience, and we should say his political will to survive, led him to wash his hands in front of that crowd. Saying, look, I have nothing to do with this. Uh Uh-uh, don't blame this on me. When full well, he was in control. He was the one who could have stopped it, and he didn't. His conscience was bothering him. And then we look at the Roman soldiers. Verse, uh, well, the latter part of the chapter there, verse 27 and following, we read, here they are, surely, surely they would have sensed that this particular individual that they are now dealing with and have now received into their uh, authority to uh, prepare him for crucifixion, surely they realize this man was different. This is not your typical uh, run-of-the-mill murderer or or someone who is uh, guilty of all sorts of capital offenses. Clearly they sensed that this man was different, and yet what did they do? They mocked him, they spat on him, they beat him. He's a helpless prisoner there. Clearly they were ignoring the warning of their conscience, or let's put it this way, at least their conscience stopped giving an alarm maybe years ago because they have been treating people like this for so long they've lost any kind of sense of the dignity of people around them. And notice this, verse 54 of the same chapter here, 
after Jesus was put to death, one of the soldiers did come to the realization, surely this was the Son of God. Or it could have been translated, surely this was a son of a God. It's unclear exactly how it should be translated. But the point is, he realized the uniqueness of this particular person. This is not like the run-of-the-mill criminals that we're putting to death here. So as I've read the text, all these thoughts about conscience seem to really make quite an impression upon me. And God has designed our conscience to serve as a warning system. To alert us that something is wrong in our moral and spiritual life. Like the complex neurological system God designed for our bodies to alert us of physical dangers and physical threats. By the sounding alarm of pain, God has also installed in each of us a warning mechanism to make us aware of spiritual dangers. Now there are several messages that are alarm system of our conscience will say to us. It'll say things in our thought life like, you better stop that, or don't do that, or you're headed for danger and you better change course now. But of course, many of us in our culture today, we are encouraged to shut off the, uh, the alarms and the alerts of our conscience. And nearly always, when people are talking in this way or they're beginning to think and act in this way, they believe and insist that guilt is harmful, it is hurtful. And there are many people who choose to believe that they are, don't want to have anything to do with guilt, so they've convinced themselves and they view themselves as morally upright and they not, not, do not have a bent towards sin at all. They try their best to shift all the blame for their wrong choices onto their parents, onto the circumstances around them, onto economic forces around them or whatever it is and they dismiss and ridicule the high moral standards of the Bible. Now if we dismiss God and his absolute standards we are left to adopt not no standards but our own standards which we essentially boils down to the standard that many people today have adopted uh, hook, line, and sinker. This is the standard. Whatever enables me to get what I want is right. That's the standard that most people have now. That is their default standard by which they operate in life. Because they don't want anything to do with guilt. And so whatever I choose to do, it's right. And you have no right to challenge the way I think about it. Now, if that is where many people are operating, listen to one of the, uh, uh, the testimony or the thoughts of one person who has crash-landed, who didn't listen to his conscience and the alarm that was sounding. It was Charles Colson, and the quote is right here in your notes. He was the legal career, crashed. Uh, and part of his uh, responsibility as one of the highest levels of lawyers you can be in the United States at the time. He was the legal counsel for the President of the United States, Richard Nixon. He ended up serving a prison sentence as a result of his involvement in the Watergate scandal. And look at the quote I have here recorded in your bulletin. The myth that mankind is basically good deludes people into thinking that they are always victims, never villains. Always deprived, never depraved. This idea of thinking about this myth that you're basically good, it can call, excuse any crime because it can always blame something else a sickness of our society or a sickness of the mind. One writer called the modern age, quote, the golden age of exoneration, unquote. And when guilt is dismissed as the illusion of narrow minds, then no one 
is accountable even to his own conscience. We're not even, not even accountable to our own conscience. If there is no moral corruption in our, in our own hearts, if we're always good, then we can say, don't hold me accountable. The blame is always somewhere else. I don't have any guilt. Our culture tries its best to encourage everyone to dismiss all these feelings of guilt and remorse, fear and regret. We need to be careful that if we continue to respond to our conscience with things like shut up, gringo, and shut off the alarm, we may develop what the Bible calls in 1 Corinthians 8 and in 1 Timothy 4 a desensitized or calloused conscience. That is, it has been so ignored and so misused and has been so for so long uh, uh, ignored and therefore um, caused to operate in ways it was never intended to operate, it therefore stops operating the way God designed it to. I would suggest to you that the ever-increasing violence we see in our world, the ever-increasing corporate corruption, widespread cheating, the, the, the extensive amount of sexual brokenness in our society and culture today, the, the extent to which immorality is so uh, widespread in our culture, I believe all these symptoms are serious, are showing forth the evidence of symptoms of the serious condition of the human heart. I'm convinced that one of the transformative aspects of Christianity is the benefit that we can be derived from fine-tuning one's conscience based on the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. We were created for God. And we function our best and find our greatest freedom when we live within the restraints and the constraints of God's laws. Your conscience will work most effectively when it has been informed and is governed by biblical truth. And that's why I urge you, if you're a young person, read the Scriptures. If you're a middle-aged person, read the Scriptures. If you're an older person, keep reading the Scriptures. That is the means by which God shapes and forms and molds our conscience into working the way it's designed to work. You say, well, okay, I hear you. We shouldn't shut it off. But you say, some of us have another problem. And this is my second concern this morning. The concern is that for some of us, our conscience never, ever, we ever get a break from it. The alarm is deafening. The alarm is in a different direction here now because the troubled conscience works so well that we're unable to find relief. Our second point. You have a troubled conscience that's unable to find relief. That's the other side of the continuum here. There are those who say, I don't want to listen to my conscience. There are some who say, that's all I can hear is I'm guilty, guilty, guilty. I want us to think about the second uh, extreme here. Some people struggle with the heavy weight of guilt. Their souls and minds are weighed down with constant thoughts of past sins, along with feelings of condemnation, leaving their spirits overwhelmed and distraught. Their consciences operate as they were designed, but the problem is the alarm never gets turned off. There's no peace. There's no calmness of soul for the person because true guilt has weighed them down. And the standards of God's moral law have been broken and past wrongdoing preoccupies their thinking. It is truly, without exaggeration, it is truly a living nightmare. 
The problem is not for a few introspective people. We all have this problem, don't we? If our conscience works, then don't we hear the alarm? Imagine if we were to take this worship center, and I'm borrowing this, by the way, uh, from this idea from Christianity Explored. I don't know how many of you have sat through it, but it's some very good illustrations and points he makes. If you were to take this worship center, and uh, if you were to transform it for just one day into a museum, and the museum would feature only one exhibit, and the exhibit would be called All About You. I'm not trying to make something uh, sacri- uh, sacrilegious Come and just bear with me. I'm just looking for a big room here. So it happens to be this room. So we take this big room and we put on the walls of this room all of the pieces of paper uh, involving everything you've ever said, every thought that you've had have been written, recorded down. They've been plastered onto the wall, photographs of you doing everything you've ever done in life, whether in secret or in public. It's all about you. Everything about you has now been put on the wall, every square inch of it on all the walls. Now, if that happened to be about me, starting back in my childhood, guess what I would do? I'd find my closest way to bolting every door around here, making sure that no one could have access to this exhibit, making sure that no one would see all the information about uh, everything about me that I wouldn't want them to know about. All of us have entertained thoughts. We've all done things we would never want anyone to know or discover. And I use that illustration as the point here that all of us need relief from the testimony of our conscience regarding our moral failures. What can be done to help us in this struggle? Well, my friends, we read in the Bible that God offers hope to those who carry this heavy burden, the heavy burden of a guilty conscience. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, just for a second. Hebrews chapter 9, page 1427 in your Bible. The Pew Bible. I cannot help but think in the chapter we were looking at this morning, we see a number of people whose conscience has been shut off or ignored. There are those who have true guilt, and here is Christ in the middle of all this. What is the point of it? How do we deal with people whose conscience weighs them down and they can't find relief? Would you look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 and 15, and then verse 22? How much more will the blood of Christ, blood of Christ meaning the death of Christ, the fact that Christ gave his life, poured it all out, as as indicated by the blood that was shed, how much more will the blood of Christ, who offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Then further on, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And without the shedding of blood, verse 22, there is no forgiveness. What's he saying here? Almighty God, who knows everything there is to know about each one of us, took steps to rescue people like you and me from an eternity of endless accusations from our consciences, being cut off from him. It is in love that God sent His eternal Son, Jesus Christ the Lord, to be our substitute and to bear our shame and our guilt upon Himself. Here is Jesus, the one we read about in Matthew 27. He clearly is hearing a testimony of His sinlessness, of His innocence. It is Jesus who lived a perfect sinless life and then voluntarily died on that cross. It wasn't Pilate 
that put him to death. Jesus yielded himself to that death. It is God who put him to death ultimately. And we would say this, that he is doing so to endure our punishment and to provide a just and a fair means for God to forgive our guilt and cleanse our conscience. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, God thereby declared to the world that Jesus offered and provided a sufficient sacrifice for those for whom he died. Jesus is in the process now of rebuilding and restoring broken and corrupt people like you and me from the inside out. And one component of this transformative formation is this, that God cleanses and clears the conscience of each person who repents and turns to him, turns away from their sin and turns to Christ in simple trust in saying, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Imagine the relief of having all the items. If we go back to that exhibit, all the items on the wall, having them all removed, completely taken down, every single one of them, and in their place, see on the wall the record of Jesus Christ. All He did to keep the law, all that He did to love God, all He did to love His brothers, His neighbors, His sisters, and all those around Him. He's All of the right things have now been put on the walls, but the still, it's an it's a exhibit about me in Christ. That's what He's promising to us. That's how we can have a conscience that's finally been dealt with and finding relief. It's in Christ. And that's what exactly God does for everyone who fully trusts in Christ alone. Not in trying to become a better person. It's trusting in the sinless one, Jesus Christ, who did for us what we can't do for ourselves. And to the one who fully trusts in the selfless saving work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead, Jesus promises that he will remember our sin no more. I read from Psalm 25. The words of David, who I thought I can identify with these words so well. He says, he prays to God, says, Do not let me be ashamed. Pardon my iniquity, for it is what? It's great. Pardon my iniquity. It is great. He says, Forgive all my sins. Remember not the sins of my youth. He goes back to when he was much younger in life and says, Looking back to all the things I regret in my life. He says, Forgive me. Don't remember those. And then he thinks, and as he turns to God in humble contrition and repentance and in trusting God, the one who can redeem, the one who can rescue sinners, he says in Psalm 32, how blessed is the person whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the person to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. He goes on to write in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. It's so important that we do that, my friends. It's important that we be able to acknowledge, here is my sin. I'm not trying to cover it up. I'm not trying to minimize my sin. I'm not blaming everything on everybody else. I'm owning up to what I've chosen to do, to say, in terms of my attitudes and what I've thought. He says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Praise God. Now, why do I end on this note? Because, my friend, Matthew 27 starts off in one of the saddest, saddest parts of the Bible you'll ever read. Tragic. Grievous. 
Because what we have here is Judas, who did not go that course. He never found relief for his conscience, a troubled, troubled conscience. If you look carefully at the word that Judas used in the beginning part of this chapter, verses uh, 3 and 4 there, he uses a different word to convey his remorse. It's a different word from the common word that's translated in the Bible, repentance, which leads to a change of thinking and a change of behavior. Here is Judas. His response has to do more with emotional regret. Paul described such a reaction in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, in which Judas essentially was like worldly sorrow. Judas was not made sorrowful to the point of true repentance. It was merely regret. Judas had a change of mind about what he did once he realized the consequences that he faced and what he had set in motion. He probably thought to himself, you know, if I knew then what I know now, I surely wouldn't have done that. And so he does what? Well, I'm going to take the 30 pieces of silver back to the chief priests and the scribes. And somehow I hope in verse 3 that they'll take this money and somehow they'll, I'll clear my sense of part in all this. Verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He admits what he knows to be true. But he sought relief not in Christ. He did not seek relief in Christ. He did not seek relief in Christ's substitutional atoning death as Peter did. But he dealt with his conscience the only way he knew to do things because he had been shutting it off and dealing with his conscience on his own for the longest time, playing the phony fraud that he was in terms of stealing money and yet acting as if he was a follower of Jesus and never wanting to admit he needed a Savior. He dealt with his conscience the way he had done it all through his adult life. He chose to go his own way and deal with it the only way he knew how, not through Christ, but he despaired and chose the way of death. He never turned to Christ. He never looked to Christ for cleansing from the great physician who came to heal the sin-sick soul. The blood of Jesus, my friend, can cleanse your conscience because Jesus died in your place. You can find forgiveness in Him. Let's pray. As we bow before the Lord, I just want to encourage all who are here today. What has your conscience been saying to you? Do you admit that you're a person who has gone astray? You've gone your own way, that you've broken God's laws. Do you admit that you're guilty before a holy God? Are you able to get beyond excuses and looking at their various factors around in your environment around you as being the reason why you are what you are? Or do you believe that you have made and do make your own choices and you have your own thoughts, your own reactions, your own attitudes? And you take responsibility for those. I hope that you'll listen to your conscience if it's still working as God designed it. And in so listening to your conscience, you would not shut it off by trying to find various forms of pleasure, various means of escape, various means of trying to 
separate out yourself from the standards of what God has required of us and somehow finding fault with the Bible, fault with other Christians, finding fault everywhere else, but to admit that you stand before God indeed as one who is guilty, in need of cleansing. And then you can join forces with those who have also very much admit they feel the weight of that conscience of their guilt. And that's all they feel. That's all that they sense is a heavy, heavy weight of guilt. I urge you, won't you come to Christ today? Won't you come to the one who was hung upon that cross? Not because he was a sinner. Not because he was a murderer. It's because he, as the sinless Son of God, came to rescue us who are guilty sinners by paying the debt we cannot pay so that we might be fully forgiven and have the weight of our guilty conscience lessened and lifted up from us. Oh, Father, I pray that you might take these truths that we have just begun to scratch the surface on, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would take your word and that he would pierce down to the core of who we are as people. Lord, for those, they need conviction of the Holy Spirit. They need your Spirit to bring them to the point where they really do sense their need for a Savior because their hardened heart has shut off the alarm a long time ago. And Lord, others are very much hearing the alarm and that's all they ever hear. They never hear forgiven. They never hear grace. They never heal. They never hear how much you love them and how much your death on the cross and resurrection from the grave can help them find relief for their conscience. Lord Jesus, help us to see you in all your glory, in all of your grace, in the extent of your love for us in giving us hope. We who are miserable sinners, help us find hope in you, we pray. Even this day, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.